A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is the very first joke my guest on today's show wrote about the time he almost landed in prison for defaming his country on foreign soil. I was on the BBC, homepage, big headline that said, Comedian polarizes the nation. Do you know how badly you have to fuck up before the British say that you divided India? (laughs) This is the last laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was comedian Veer Das from his latest Netflix special, Landing. The special, Veer's fifth hour on Netflix, premiered on the service last month, and I have not been able to stop thinking about it since. It's his first special since the international incident that totally upended his life and threatened to end his comedy career. See, in November of 2021, Veer ended his stand-up show at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., by reading a piece to the audience that he called, I Come From Two Indians. He knew it might be controversial, but he never could have imagined how big of a stir it would cause in his home country when he uploaded it to YouTube. So before we get to my interview with Veer, I want to do something a little different and play the whole five and a half minute Two India speech for you now. I think it provides some really important context to both his new special and this conversation. The temptation in this moment is to make a video about myself, and I don't want to do that because I'm reminded that I come from India. I come from which India? I come from two Indias. Those are the Indias that I bring on stage with me right now. I come from an India where children in masks hold hands with each other, and yet I come from an India where leaders hug each other without masks. I come from an India where the AQI is 9,000, but we still sleep on the roof and look up at the stars. I come from an India where we worship women during the day and gang rape them at night. I come from an India where we claim to be divided over Bollywood on Twitter and yet are united by Bollywood in the darkness of a theater. I come from an India where we scoff at sexuality and yet fuck till we reach a billion people. (laughs) I come from an India where journalism is supposedly dead because men in fancy suits and studios give each other hand jobs and yet women on the road with laptops are still telling the truth. I come from an India where we bleed blue every time we play green, but every time we lose to green, we turn orange all of a sudden. I come from an India where we laugh so loudly in the comfort of our own homes that you can hear us through the walls, and yet I come from an India where we break down the walls of a comedy club because you can hear laughter inside. I come from an India where old leaders will not stop talking about their dead fathers and young leaders will not stop following their living mothers. I come from an India that has the largest working population under 30 on the planet but still listens to 75-year-old leaders with 150-year-old ideas. I come...
I come from an India where every time we get information, we are always available to care for the PM, but we can't seem to get any information on PM cares. I come from an India where we kicked out the British, but yet we call the government the ruling party. I come from an India where women wear sarees and sneakers and yet have to take advice from old men who have never worn a saree and will never get to take one off in their entire lives. I come. I come from an India where our music is very hard, but our sentiments are very soft. I come from an India where people sleep outside on the road, outside the club, but man, 20 times a year, the road is the club. I come from an India where we take pride in being vegetarians and yet run over the farmers who grow our vegetables. I come from an India where we claim to fully support the troops until it comes to their pension plans. I come to an India where we can never be on time, no matter where we go. But yet, we are always early on the Cohen website for some reason. I come from an India where we have maids and drivers and yet want to come to America to do their job. I come from an India that self-serves, and I come from an India that self-preserves. I come from an India that will not shut up, and yet I come from an India that will not speak up. I come from an India that will accuse me of airing our dirty laundry, and yet I come from an India that wears their heart on their sleeve, irrespective of how dirty their clothes are. I come from an India that tells me every single day to go to Pakistan, and yet I also come from an India that invites Pakistanis over every single day. If only to whoop their ass on a cricket field. I come... I come from an India that is going to watch this and say, this isn't stand-up comedy, where is the goddamn joke? And yet I come from an India that will watch this and know that there is a gigantic joke, it just isn't funny. I come from an India where children living in basements and writing on comment sections have more courage than men in skyscrapers. I come from an India that is Hindu and Muslim and Christian and Sikh and Parsi and Jew. And when we all look up at the sky, we only see one thing together, the price of petrol. <laughs> I leave you tonight and I go back to that India. Which India do I go back to? Both of them. Which India am I proud of? One of them. <laughs> Which India is proud of me? None of them. <laughs> I wanted to do this because we're at the Kennedy Center. You know, this is a dream for an artist. It's been mine for a very long time. And the reason it's a dream is because you get to see great people here. You get to see greatness on this stage. And this whole room was built for a great man in his memory. But as I stand here before you, I'm reminded that I represent a great people. Great people who built a great thing that is turning into a memory. And I know that you believe in that India like I believe in that India because I see it in your eyes and you are in this room tonight. So before I leave your country, I will leave this stage and I will put the camera on you and you make some noise for the India you want to live in because I promise you that this is the Kennedy Center but tonight this is our fucking house. So make some noise for him. <laughs> All right, let's go now to my conversation with Veer Das. Are you in L.A. or uh, where are you now? I'm in L.A. where it is uh, freezing. Um, yeah, which I, I, I feel like is 
is false advertising. Like every time I come to America, every single pharmaceutical ad is like, here's the medicine, here's what you should know. <laughs> but not one ad is like Los Angeles actually freezing for six months a year. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you're enjoying our India-style weather uh, in the, with the rain. Uh, respectfully, don't flatter yourself because you've got one day of rain. <laughs> All right. <laughs> like, so let's not get big, carried away. It's a big away. deal for us. It's a big deal. Um, well, thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this. Um, I, I really, really loved your new special, um, Landing, and I want to I talk about that. Uh, but because the, the two Indias speech is so central to, to the narrative of it, I thought maybe we could start there. Um, and can you kind of explain uh, explain to people um, what that speech was? Because we don't actually get to see it in in the special, um, but you can obviously watch it on YouTube. Um, so can you can you talk about what that was and why you felt like it was something you wanted to do in that moment? Well, I I, I think there's a reason that you don't see it in the special, which is because the special is very much so about the aftermath of dealing with outrage, whatever happened to cause that outrage. And and I think we live in a world where it's reasonably unpredictable what's going to and what's not going to, you know, resonate with people or cause outrage. So I ended up doing a YouTube video uh, on my channel, which was one of many sort of YouTube videos in a similar vein. But this one, for uh, reasons I, I still don't quite understand, ended up getting a sea of love. You know, so it ended up getting many, many millions of views um, over the first three days. And then a sea of outrage as well. And so uh, at the end of it, getting like 25 million views or something like that, one had to kind of uh, deal with a reasonable amount of drama and then kind of dig deep and uh, see how one could turn the drama into something that brings people joy, you know, which I think is essentially the job of a comedian. Right? So long story short, I put out a YouTube video. There was a ton of love. There was a ton of outrage. And... I kind of said, can I write a show that makes both the people who love and both the people who outrage uh, laugh at the end of the day? And really, that's what my show is about. What kind of reaction did you anticipate when you did decide to to film that and, and put it on your YouTube channel? I mean, you said you, you don't quite know why it hit such a nerve, but you must have, you, it was something you decided to do. Um, it was a deliberate, you know, move. So what, what did you expect would happen? I, I, I didn't expect anything. I, and I continue not to expect anything of any piece of content that I do. You just put it out hoping your YouTube fan base will enjoy it. You know, it's something that I did on a regular basis. It's, you know, we, we found a wedding photographer to shoot it <laughs> on that day because I wrote it at like 3 p.m., there's a reason there's a paper in hand. It's because uh, I, I don't quite remember the material yet. It's new material. So I, I think perhaps the moral of the story is don't use the Kennedy Center as your open mic uh, <laughs> is, uh, for, for your new five new minutes. But no, did not expect any sort of a reaction. I, I think um, I don't think artists get, get to choose, decide, orchestrate or manufacture creating a conversation ever. It just kind of happens for you. And even in that moment, you're thinking about, OK, what is the next piece of uh, quote unquote art or content that you're looking to put out? Um, you know, it struck me that watching it, that it has jokes in it, um, that that piece. But it, it feels very different from your one moment. Oh, I didn't catch that. Could you try again? Sorry, one second. I, I activated my Siri for some reason, which is, <laughs> by the way, the first time Siri has understood an Indian accent, uh, which is insane. <laughs> Sorry, you were saying. It struck me that it it has jokes in it, but it it feels very different from your stand up comedy um, in tone and just in presentation. Um, and I wondered if if that is part of why it 
it hit in a different way. Do you think that had something to do with it? That it wasn't straight stand up. It wasn't straight jokes. I wouldn't know. And I honestly wouldn't go there just purely basis artistic philosophy. Like I have a very clear policy, which is that I'd never critique my own work. That's your honor, you know, and, and I have to take your feedback, good feedback and bad feedback with equal amounts of enthusiasm. So, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm never a fan of artists who look back and be like, the reason that blah, blah, blah happened <laughs> is because I did a, no, uh, however you feel about any piece of content that an artist creates, you take your feedback, head down, mouth shut, um, and you, you try and create your next piece. So the honest answer is don't know and uh, feel like it's artistically disingenuous to even think about it. Yeah, I mean, you you did issue a, a statement, I believe, after all of the outrage and uproar, sort of clarifying what you meant. Um, did you do that because you felt it was being taken out of context? Or, or why did you feel the need to address it in that way? Well, I think the, the big problem with stand-up uh, for most, you know, major comedians and minor comedians like myself is taking, you know, little bits of a stand-up comedy routine and, and putting them online without context for the full bit. Um, so... What I always tell people is if you're ever going to watch a piece of stand-up, you got to watch the whole thing and then you'll understand. And I think any comedian would be better served by you watching the whole thing. You mentioned, you know, it got a a ton of love from your fans. It got a a ton of outrage from, you know, everyone, uh, political figures in Mm -hmm. in India, a lot of people. What did you hear about it from people in your own life, um, in your family, friends? Um, What was was the reaction that you got um, sort of on a more personal level? I didn't to be honest i just kind of uh the the best way i can describe it is you know i think the the blessing or the curse of a comedian is you can take your biggest stumble or your biggest mistake or the worst situation in your life and even in the middle of that situation you're thinking someday this will be five good minutes you know it's like i I just have to arrive at that so i kind of had to block everything out um which i talk about in the special is i kind of turned my phone off went underground um and I think that whenever I talk to sort of Western people about it, the only way I can equate it is uh, I can't wait to hear Chris Rock's five minutes about the Oscars, you know, and and I have yet to see him give uh, an interview about it or discuss it or analyze it or even take in multiple reactions around it. He's just like, when you see it, it'll be jokes. Um, and when you see it, it'll be funny. So really, my focus was not to listen to any reactions and to kind of say, what is the first joke that I can write about this? Um, so that was the process. And saying, can that joke make both the people that were upset and the people that were happy uh, laugh? So uh, for two months, I kind of agonized over that first joke uh, because it, it had to accomplish three things. It had to make everybody laugh. I had to be the butt of that joke, you know, and uh, it, it had to be something that addressed it in a way that we, you know, we were all thinking about it. When, when Chris Rock walks out on stage, I'm going to be thinking about it. Uh, and, and I'm going to need him to talk about it. So I can share that with you. But it, it took two months to write, you know. What, what was that first joke fir- that you wrote? The, the first joke was just, uh, I was on the homepage of the BBC. And the BBC had a big headline that said, Comedian Polarizes the Nation. <laughs> Do you know how badly you have to mess up before the British say that you divided India? Uh, and I think that encapsulates the whole thing, that there was polarization. Uh, I had messed up and, uh, you know, and I was the part of that joke. So I, I think that's the job of a humble artist, you know? 
Yeah, that's a great uh, jumping off point. But of course, you got far more than five minutes out of it. I mean, this the the special really um, you know talked about a lot of different things, but it's really the the focal point of the special. Um, it will be interesting to see uh, Chris Rock has a, a, a live Netflix special, the first ever uh, coming up. So that I wonder if he'll be if he'll uh, open with that or, or what we'll see there. Um, and you actually open uh, your special with a joke that touches on uh, the, the Oscar slap as well, because you talk about the, the dangerous nature of stand-up comedy. I was already terrified before I came out. I'm doing stand-up comedy in 2022. Anything could happen tonight. I could be arrested, assaulted, stabbed, slapped, even worse, discussed on Reddit. I don't know how your evening goes. Maybe you get home digitally alter photographs of yourself to prove that you had a real-life experience on a platform designed to give you depression and anxiety by trading your data for dopamine in a world in which your news is fake but your comic books are real and the only thing we can really be certain about tonight is some billionaire CEO with like baller money and virgin energy will put his little rocket inside a supermodel or space or both. Welcome to the show, guys. Well, in the in the seven seconds that Netflix tells you you have to win people over when they start a special, you're basically told <laughs> Is that what you they have seven you? seconds, and I'm like, yeah, and I'm like, Jesus, okay. Uh, so I kind of, um, I mean, you've seen the special, so there was a big, uh, very gracious round of applause, and I just kind of shut it down, and I was like, mm-hmm. let's go. Mm-hmm. I have seven seconds. You know, <laughs> when you mention the the two Indias video, you also get a huge applause break. Um, and so I think there's there's definitely recognition from your fans for that. And there's sort of, as you said, an expectation that you're going to talk about it. Um, so beyond, you know, writing that first joke, how did you approach, you know, what, how am I going to make this into something that that's funny? And as you said, that can make people on either side of the issue laugh. I think I had to be the fool in it, you know, and I had to talk about all of my foolishness and, and never in a way that victimizes you or lionizes you but just sort of maintains you as an idiot throughout the entire process um and so i think that's the tone that i really went for because i i do think whether you care about the the initial video or not uh it's still got to be a special that you want to watch and a special that you want to enjoy so can you jump off from there and go to uh you know boarding school or true crime in america or the film fair awards or flying on emirates etc etc but can you be the idiot of the entire story? Uh, I think that's important. And I think that's what people will relate to more than anything else because they've been the idiot of their stories, hopefully. There's a really beautiful thing that you do visually in this special with this divided stage, which it takes us a while to figure out what, what, you're, what you're up to there. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think it, it kind of it represents these two sides of yourself. Um, so how did, you, how did you arrive at that idea um, and... and and what? Why did you want to uh, to do it that way? Um, because I've, I I have this sort of perpetual outsider perspective, right? I I grew up in India, and then I was raised in Africa, and then I went to private school in India, and then I went to university in Delhi, and public school in Delhi. Then I went to America, then I went to Bollywood. Now I'm kind of all over the place. So I've I've kind of always felt like this person who never belongs, and is kind of on the outside looking in. And then I think when I was writing this special about a year before that. I'd seen a, a clip from The Prestige, which is one of my favorite movies. And in The Prestige, Michael Caine says that there's three parts to every magic trick, which is, you know, the pledge, the turn, and the prestige. And it had been in my head for about three years or something where I'm like, it would be really cool to structure a special around that. 
you know, if there was a a central magic trick at the center of the, of a special. So what happens here is I pledge, which is I uh, I show you some sand, you know, and uh, I pour some sand, and I think you're wondering what that is. Yeah, right? I had no, I had no idea why you were doing that in and, that moment. And we don't yeah. talk about it till the end of the special, and then I keep cutting to random shots of shoes that that again you don't understand what they are. They're very out of context and very jarring in the edit and then about uh 49 minutes into the special we turn it which was that we revealed that half the stage is indian soil and half the stage is american soil and i've timed my footwork the entire time where literally in the entire special every time i've done a joke about america i'm standing on american soil every time i've done a joke about india i'm standing on indian soil and then the prestige is that you reveal uh you know, there's a tagline to the special, which is the floor is home. And uh, you bring it all back with this Emirates story. You know, so, so you find me on the floor at the end. So that's kind of the, the motivation for it was this one YouTube clip that was uh, a minute and 10 seconds long with Michael Kane. I'm too Indian for the West, but too Western for India. Does that make sense to anybody? That's, that's easy applause. I'll break it down. All right. Like, okay, check it out. I'm, I'm not so Indian that I would study to be a doctor. Mm -mm. No. But like, I'm Indian enough where I would never use a white doctor. Sorry. Is this... I would let an Indian engineer treat me before a white doctor. I don't need curative medicine. I need cheap, efficient solutions now. Yeah, it's very clever as well because it it sort of compels the viewer to go back and watch it again to track your your movements. And to see if they can catch me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Did yeah. that take a lot of work to to choreograph that because that's, you know, you think about oh, most stand-up yeah. comics are sort of roaming the stage seemingly at random uh and you had to be very deliberate about where you were at, in any given moment. It's the it's kind of the reason that I did the Edinburgh Fringe Festival because I'm like a, I didn't have the timing down and then I kind of did the fringe and ended up doing, I, I think, upwards of 29 shows in 25 days. And I just used that as kind of like almost ballet rehearsal, like footwork rehearsal. You know, so I, I put a, a piece of tape down in the middle of the stage and just time every word to my feet. You know, it took a while, to be honest. Uh, there's another part of your special where you you're talking about how you've been compared in a sort of unfair way to spiritual gurus. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it relates to this question that I've, I've asked uh, you know, several guests on this podcast um, about whether we as a, as a society seem to be taking comedians too seriously, um, which I think definitely applies to your work and, and, and to the, the reaction to your work. Um, do you feel like comedians have, have been um, given a too too much status uh in a sense or taken uh, oh, for sure too, too seriously I, absolutely on my best day i'm a moron right and, <laughs> and uh should not be listened to at all what i do think the uh, in our highest form and and that our most uh effective the most a comedian can do is take a serious issue and make your mind connect to something outrageous and silly and stupid from that serious issue so that Maybe five days from now, when you're still dealing with that issue, uh, maybe you think back to something we said and you have a laugh and it makes it easier to cope with. Um, that's the best that we can serve, uh, I think. I don't think we're ever going to change people's minds. I don't think we're ever going to influence, you know, ideology ever. Uh, I just think we'll make you think of something funny and go, huh, uh, the next time you read the newspaper. 
and, and but I think that's a, a, a decent uh, goal. But you've had the sort of opposite experience of of people really taking what you what you say to heart, taking it literally, um, you know. And but do you think that there's a sort of a double edged sword to that because you you know you are speaking out about really big and important things. So do you feel like you you want to be? I'm I'm going from big and important things to really silly things. You know, I'm I'm never saying you know. So I'm going to the outrageous always, right? Where I'm an idiot. But I think people taking things literally is also par for the course uh, when you get a broad audience, which is a blessing, right? At the end of the day, most comedy fans know that none of this stuff is to be taken seriously. But when your tiny little comedy scene in India tends to explode and becomes a big scene, all of a sudden there's a lot of first-time viewers at the table um, that may have a, a more nascent reaction to stand up. And you just got to welcome them in and say, okay, par for the course. But the next time you watch my stand-up, you'll know you know, and uh, and welcome to the club, you know. So I think in that sense, any view or any audience is a good audience, irrespective of how they react. You have to honor that. Another bit that really stood out to me, um, because it's another topic that, that gets talked about a lot in this, in, in comedy, is uh, the idea of punching up and punching down. And you describe it as a concept that, that really doesn't make sense in India, the way we talk about it here. Um, can you elaborate on that? Um, what what you mean by, by the fact that it, it doesn't, it doesn't really work in in Indian society. No, I think it works, but I, I think it, your uh, your blanket rules of punch up and punch down are basis consistent Western privilege for which there are accurate barometers to measure your consistent privilege. Your punch up and punch downs don't account for volatile privilege or intersectional privilege or changing privilege. Um, I, I feel like sometimes. Um, you know, the West tends to view the comedic uh, the comedy in the world from a comedic lens that is always relative to them, as opposed to simply existing on its own. Uh, and, and I think the the punch, uh, no judgment, but I think the punch up, punch down conversation kind of goes into that, where it's like, um, you know, uh, it's a very Western lens to view the world. Coming up, Veer talks about what happened when his plane landed in India following outcries for his arrest. And later, he shares his unique perspective on American comedians who complain about cancel culture. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Do 
you know when Crystal Pepsi was discontinued? What was in Al Capone's vault? Or which famous meteorologist is Lenny Kravitz's second cousin? If not, then you haven't spent enough time on Wikipedia. But that's okay, because you can learn it all on the new podcast, WikiHole, from Smartless Media. Discover the craziest rabbit holes on Wikipedia with host and friend of the last laugh, Darcy Carden, and her favorite comedian friends, as they bring the cyber frontier directly to your tympanic membrane. And if you listen to WikiHole, you will learn that's the sciencey term for eardrum. WikiHole is a hyperlink roller coaster, starting out on one Wikipedia page and then going from link to link to link to link, careening through trivia, oddities, and unexpected connections until everyone wonders, how the hell did we get here? Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our conversations with some other stand-up comedians who have used their platforms to challenge authority, like Hassan Minhaj, Kathy Griffin, and Sasha Baron Cohen, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Veer Das. The special really leads up in a way to this uh, landing of the of the plane in India after after your speech went viral and we're you know we're tracking your your progress on this plane. Um what did happen when you returned to India for the first time after after making oh, this it's, speech? It's all in in the special, you know, there was a, a ton of paparazzi. We turned our phones off. Um, the you know, uh, and then you know, the theme of the special is you turn your phone on after two months, so to speak, and you discover that that hate is yelled and love is felt. You know, and, and you find love, and, and you you're thankful that that the people around you gave you the stamina to stick around. You know, and, and wait for the love. And I think that's the the central theme of the special is if you ever find yourself at the, at the receiving end of outrage or anger, hang in there and love is on the way, you know. So I think that's really what happened is we came back home, we went underground, we turned our phones off, turned them on two months later and a sea of love found us, you know. And I, I, and I kind of swore to myself that if I ever was able to gig publicly again, I would make everybody laugh, you know, and really treat it as a privilege. And so then we... We announced a tour and I wrote that one joke and I was like, okay, I need more than one joke. And, and then we were able to, <laughs> to tour the entire world with it. So I'm, I'm happy to say that, you know, something that begins with uh, a little bit of drama tends, is then pivoted to making millions of people laugh. I'm proud of that, you know. Was, was there a moment, though, that you felt like it, it might all be over, that you wouldn't be able to do that anymore? And, and, and how did you yeah, deal with course, that? Yeah, of course, yeah. I felt like I had let people down. I felt guilty. You know, I never want to hurt anyone. And so I just felt guilty. Um, and external factors aside, all you can do is internalize it and say, what can I do personally? And so I was just like, I hope personally I can bring people to the table again. You know? What were the the sort of more lasting uh, ramifications, if any, on your life and your career, uh, you know, how you think about what you say, um, does it, has it changed you at all? Do you think the experience? No, I, I think I know that 
the audience will tell me where the line is. I still have to write the joke. You know, that's my policy is strictly do the joke once, twice, thrice. And the audience will let you know. They'll slap you around if they need to slap you around. And they'll, uh, they'll cheer you on if they need to cheer you on. But don't think about the line. Let them show you where the line is in that sense. And also, I, I think I'd never really put myself out there in a special before. Like, really put myself out there. Because I'm, I'm a little bit early in comedy to be comfortable with the silence. And I, I don't feel like I have the gravitas yet to really hold uh, an uncomfortable moment. So on this special, I kind of had a rule for myself, which is like a silence will never cross more than 11 seconds, uh, except for one twenty seconds of silence, which is a, a comedic device. But I'm like, an, an uncomfortable silence will never cross 11 seconds and there better be a big goddamn laugh around the corner, you know, and it better be silly if you're ever doing that. But I'm glad I did. And then there's more of a connection with the audience. I feel like the next time they see me or I see them, maybe we can take some more liberties with each other. And now we know each other a little bit. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing what that is. I never put myself out there emotionally in a special before. How does how does that relate to to your approach when you were first starting out? Were you very it was much less personal, or um, how how do you how do you think about them in relation to each other? Well, I th- I think you know when you're starting out, you're kind of writing about what you think people want to hear. And then you get into a self-indulgent moment for a few years where you're writing what you want to say. And then I, I think you, the perfect show kind of meanders between stuff you want to say and stuff they want to hear in a perfect ratio. And I certainly haven't written that show yet, but that is the goal, to write that show. You know, um, I, I do think it needs to be authentic. So that's, uh, you also take a while to own your story. You know, for, for a while you're writing comedy that will make you an insider and then you know you start doing this for a while and then you're like no i'm an outsider and that's my perspective and i just have to hone this this is who i am um so i think those are the two things that might have changed for me i feel like all of this relates to the broader conversation about free speech and comedy uh you know cancel culture obviously um and these are issues that american comedians are been speaking a lot about over the last several years you have a great line uh in the special where you say uh please don't cancel me it will interfere with my incarceration um (laughs) which i i loved um and it really highlights that that the stakes of what you were dealing with um speaking out against uh you know or or speaking about uh, issues in india not necessarily against the indian government but but that may have been implicit um there are much bigger um stakes and consequences to that than the idea of getting quote unquote canceled in in the states um so how did how do you think about that um and the sort of the, the difference between what what you're doing and what maybe some american comedians are complaining about i i don't i mean any day that you get to talk about your problems to a group of strangers on a stage or on netflix it's a pretty good day you know let's be honest about that like if you have the ability to do that. And I, I, don't, I don't think of myself as a comedian relative to American comedians, you know, or, or relative to anyone else. Um, I just kind of, you know, whether... I don't think comedians do ourselves any favors by talking about what's fair and what's unfair. Um, if it's fair, is it funny? And if it's unfair, is it funny? Uh, and is it a story you want to tell? I think those are the questions that a comedian should ask themselves if you're looking to up... Um, your game, which I am, you know. And when you hear American comedians, you know, complain that they they can't say anything anymore, or they're going to get in trouble. I mean, how do you, how do you react to that? Because it's it is just so different from from what you are dealing with. 
or what you what you have well, done. I, I think that's that's something you feel but i would rather hear a joke about that than hear you say that you know so if you feel like you can't say anything i'd love to hear a witty joke about how you feel like you can't say anything <laughs> rather than just you just vocalizing that that's my honest feedback um what are your, you know, ambitions in in comedy moving forward? You know, you talked about sort of getting more and more comfortable uh, on, you know, talking about yourself on stage. But what what do you what do you want to do with this, you know, increasingly large platform that you have? Um, for this year, I'm trying to write. You know, but during the pandemic, I started the, these pieces called the Ten on Ten series, and uh, you know, these were out, outdoor pieces of comedy, and I did five. And the aim with them was to say, can I write ten? Um, pieces of comedy about the world that we live in, you know, and and see if they stand the test of time, but unapologetically write about the world. So, you know, I think we did we did cancel culture, we did privilege, we did uh, death, we did uh, religion, and we did freedom of speech. Those are done, you know. And I want to spend 2023 shooting five different 10 on 10 episodes in five different cities in the world uh, and treating them like mini films. So I'm writing the new one, which is about going to war, you know, uh, and and I'm picking a city in the world to write that, uh, to, to shoot it in. So I'd love to spend the year writing five more pieces of, of hopefully flagship comedy. And those would all go be shot and, and, and put out this year. Is that the goal? That's the goal. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's definitely ambitious. I mean, you d- you did it once already. I think so. so. I guess you could do it again, but not in. There wasn't in five different cities the first time, right? No, it was just in a forest near my house. But no, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to see if I can do five different continents in five different cities this year. What do you know yet? What the other topics you want to explore are? No, I mean the world has to kind of tell you. I do believe that we're heading for a global conflict. So I think war is pretty much on everybody's mind. So, I, and I've I've never written stand up about war before so I'm, I'm gonna try and put that into perspective yeah i mean none of those topics you mentioned are necessarily easy to make comedy about but, but war is probably one of the one of the harder ones so how do you i think so how do you approach that i don't know you know it, it's it's the similar thing where when i wrote the the 10 on 10 episode about death you know it was a very tough write because you know we were mid second wave and you know we truly everybody in the world had a horrific second wave of covid i think we all know that and i was inside i couldn't go outside and so it was a zoom show and you kind of try to come at it from as global an angle as you could you know and and i think i'll i'll come at the war piece from that as well just try and really encapsulate every side of the globe and what they feel about it um on a on a lighter note i i saw that you're um working on a scripted series uh or is in development um with the, the lonely island guys andy samberg and and that crew um, is that still underway? And and what can you what can yeah, you share still about in development. that process? It's, it's, we're writing right now. We're still in development. Uh, it's about an Indian man who comes over to America and gets into country music, which I think could be ridiculously fun to take an American art form and and maybe we can appropriate some of you for a change. You know, <laughs> you know <what> I'm <laughs> is, that, is that a passion of yours, country music? I, I'm I'm the front man of a band, so I like uh, you know classic rock blues I'm heavily influenced by by all three genres um and so that so you would be the uh the star and, and creator of that show is that the is that the idea i hope so otherwise it would be much less fun to create <laughs> uh, yeah i mean what, what is that what's the process been like of of working on that and and working with with those guys it's been great it's it's been we're writing right now so i, I love the writing process i'm writing two movies in this series for the american market right now and um you know, it's 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 interesting to 
tackle subjects that America knows and inf- and is familiar with and then infuse them with a modern Indian perspective instead of this sort of perspective that you've heard a bunch of times uh, about the Indian diaspora in America. So that's the mission. And everybody's been ridiculously open and fun about it. So I'm enjoying it. Uh, so now I want to do our segment called The First Laugh, where I'm going to ask you about some firsts in your life and career around comedy. Um, and starting all the way back in childhood, do you remember the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard? Uh, something that just that really connected with you um, early on? Oh, boy. Um, Richard Pryor setting himself on fire, that, that routine. And then um, Bill Cosby, the dentist routine. You know, being in the dentist chair. Those are the two pieces of stand-up that I that I first watched. And I was like, I think I, I want to do this. Um, do you remember the first time that you knew that you were funny, that you had the ability to make other people laugh? It was getting bullied in school, where I was the kid who would keep getting his ass whooped, but wouldn't shut up during the ass whooping. Um, so uh, then I was like, <laughs> okay. At some point, even the guy beating me up would crack a smile. And I was like, I might have something here, you know? <laughs> What about the first time that you performed stand-up? Uh, where were you? Um, how did it go? Uh, you know, can you can you sort of set the scene? I was uh, final year of drama school, and I I did seventy five minutes for eight hundred people. Oh my god! I wrote a, first a stand-up time? show called <laughs> Yeah, called Brown Men Can't Hump, and I, and it went really well. And I thought I was amazing, and then I went to an open mic in Chicago and discovered I was not amazing at all, <laughs> and that I needed jokes. What was that open mic like? Uh, I was booed off stage, I think, eight weeks in a row. It was a room on the south side of Chicago with very little patience for for idiots, you know. What kind of material were you doing in those uh, in those very early days? I don't know, something about cockroaches or something like that. You know, it, it, nothing terribly profound or interesting. What about when it started to work for you? Do you remember the first joke or bit or something that, that really connected with an audience? Yeah, I just ended up yelling at people. It was the same open mic. I'd been off, booed off stage like seven weeks in a row. And then I kind of went up and I'm like, you know, you Americans, you don't understand how important Indians are. We drive your taxis. We sell you food. We teach you as professors. We are your gynecologists. We give you newspapers. <laughs> Without Indians, you would be starving, stranded, sexless, sterile and stupid. I think was the first joke I ever wrote that got a laugh. You've obviously done, you know, a lot of uh, big movies in India. Uh, and then recently you had sort of your, your first big American movie role in The Bubble, which was um, Judd Apatow's movie. So I, I was just wondering if there was a, a story or memory that, that stands out from the experience of working on that, because it was such a unique project in a lot of ways. It was, it was a wonderful process because, it, you know, I'd auditioned for something else in the movie and then Judd kind of, uh, I didn't get the role and then Judd kind of zoomed with me and he's like, look, let's just make up something and put you in this movie. And so we created this character out of thin air and uh, improvised the entire thing. You know, I remember uh, Maria Bakalova and myself, we got to set and uh, we didn't have a line in the script. And uh, Were you Judd worried was about just that? like, don't worry. <laughs> No, not at all. I, I trusted it Im- Im- implicitly because I, I don't think there's a better improv director than Jared Apatow, you know. And so we improvised for 28 days and just got this together. And he gave every character space and room and it was wonderful. Is there a moment or a line or something that was improvised uh, that you were in that, that stands out? I, uh, <laughs> at some point, I think over lunch, you know, I, I play this character who runs this hotel and everybody leaves at the end of the at the end of the movie. And I'm just left alone in this hotel. And I remember telling them, I'm like, it'd be really cool to just kind of light up a joint and dance alone in this hotel <laughs> to some Bollywood music. 
and it was on the call sheet the next morning that's um, great and so then i and i went back and youtube dance steps to kind of rehearse for it which is kind of cool do you remember uh what it was like to to meet uh one of your comedy heroes for the first time um someone who you just really looked up to and and uh and meeting them and, and what the experience was like i remember meeting keegan michael key on on the sets of the apatow movie and and just he was my first scene and it was like 6 a.m. and we were improving the entire thing and i just kind of had to be like we shut up and get in the scene stop watching him act <laughs> uh and he was really supportive and then i think you know working at the comedy cellar i've been able to meet a lot of comics that i just kind of admire you know who are 30 32 years in and i watch their sets and i take school i take classes you would any any comedy cellar uh stories or 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 things that that stand out um i had to follow uh chris rock once uh, <laughs> you know which was terrifying because he had done an hour um but i i think the beauty of the comedy cellar is is comics who may not be quite as famous but who have been in the game for 30 years and are assassins you know and following them finally is there a a story or memory from your career that really makes you laugh now but was not funny when it happened well i i did a special about it <laughs> it's called <laughs> landing but but you know uh exactly You know just like early years in Bollywood I think where I was trying to be this this Bollywood hero guy with like chiffon shirts and running around uh, you know uh, and trying to get a six pack I think that's something that's just funny to me right now how much I was focused on trying to get a six pack <laughs> how dehydrated I was for 3 years of my life trying to get a six pack because you you felt that was going to be very important to your career of course of course it's method acting isn't it getting a six pack <laughs> less important than stand up comedy Of course. Yeah. Nothing is as important as six pieces of abs on your stomach. Yeah. <laughs> um well, Veer, thank you so much for doing this and talking with me and I uh I as I said, I I love the special and I hope that that more and more people get to check it out. Um so I think it's it's a really uh, special piece um and yeah, I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right, I really want to thank Virdas for sharing his story and being my guest on this week's show. His latest special, Landing, is streaming now on Netflix, and you can get tickets to see him perform live all over the US this spring at virdas.in/tour. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for the Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on the dailybeast.com. See you next week. <laughs>